Hello, everybody. It is great to be here one more time. My name is Gary Fowler. I'm the CEO, President, and Founder of GSD, Get You Done Venture Studios, Premier AI and Quantum Venture Studio, located in the heart of Silicon Valley. I'm a 17-time serial entrepreneur with several unicorns under the belt. I was on the original team of Click Software, which was sold to Salesforce for $1.35 billion, and also the founder of EVA, AI and AHR tech company that I co-founded with Dr. David Yen. We believe at GSD that intellectual capacity of evenly spread around the world, but opportunities are not. And with that, I'd like to bring my incredible guest, Oliver Gale. He's a CEO, uh, founder, co-founder at Panther Protocol. Uh, it's, he's a Web3 entrepreneur with over 10 years experience building protocols and platforms that transform global infrastructure. He's an artist, he's a writer, he's a free thinker, and right now he's in Bordeaux, France, enjoying a life. He's an experienced CEO and president, CFO and chief product officer. He's a pioneer and advocate of CBDC on public, don uh, public blockchains. And he's the founder of the Caribbean's first digital asset exchange. Ooh, we gotta talk about that, that's interesting. He's an early stage investor. He's got a wide, wide background, so with that, I'd like to bring Oliver Gale on. Hi, Oliver. How are you? Hi, Gary. How are you doing, man? I'm just trying to relocate to make sure that I'm as close to the Wi-Fi router as humanly possible. Uh, how are you? Good, good, good. So so tell us a little bit. You're in Bordeaux right now. Are You, you said you're in a barn or is it a house? Well, it used to be a barn and now it's a house. Uh, my uncle is an architect, so he restored it some years ago, and it's now decorated with family heirlooms. It's been our family uh, uh, getaway home for the past 20 years or so. Oh, that's fantastic. And where are you originally from? I'm from Barbados. Oh, no kidding. So wait a minute. You're from Barbados. You're in France. Uh, you do. You live, and you're in London too, right? In London in, in the UK. I spent COVID, the sort of 2020 to 2021, living in London. And then last year, sort of 2021 to 2022, was a digital nomad um, and spent most of the months that I was anywhere in London. So that was about four months in London last year. And no so way. now I've moved back to Barbados and uh, I'm considering moving back to London next year. So. Wait a minute. You went back and now you're going back. What's the And how is Barbados? What's it like? It's fantastic. Man, Barbados is a small island. It's idyllic. It's a lot of fun. It's seasonal. So it's run by the tourist seasons and it gets very fun and exciting during the winter months and pretty quiet and humid during the summer months. So if you can be in Barbados as a sanctuary and for the winter months, it's fantastic. And then if you're able to travel or you get out on business etc during the summer months i'd say in my view and i've been many places it's for me it's my favorite place uh, on earth and what do you do for fun in barbados for fun yeah I go to the beach beach bars uh horse racing uh horse rally racing cars barbados? yep horse racing motorsports are big in barbados and what, uh, what do they have, like a Formula One track, or what is it all about? No, it's rally cars, sort of WRC spec rally cars. Uh, 
and it's it's there's three hundred thousand people on Barbados. The motorsport audience is forty five thousand people. So wow, it's many people. Yeah. So you have a lot of fun doing that. Do you race? No, my brother in law does though. Oh, that's fantastic! So you went to University of Bristol. You went to Trinity College. Where was Trinity? Where's Trinity College located? Ontario. And so you were in yeah. Ontario, then you went to Bristol. Where was where, where was that? Was that in Canada too, or was that over in the UK? That was in the UK. And how was that? You move around a lot. I mean, how is it going across cultures like that? You know, you go from this kind of Caribbean culture over to the UK. It's a lot uh, more rigid. What What's it like? You know, it's a great question. I was... I was to add more con, more sort of uh, color to the pot. I was also a full-time reggae artist, um, and so when I moved from Canada, Canada during my time at boarding school, I discovered my enduring love and passion for music, and I began writing and singing hip hop and reggae music. I had a hit record in Barbados when I graduated and I took a, a gap year that that song was played globally, Africa, Europe, Canada, Barbados, South America. And so I was fully entrenched in my music. By the time I was uh, convinced by my parents to, to continue with my education and go to University of Bristol in England. And the first year was a culture shock uh between i find england to be quite a tribal country and um what do you just, mean by tribal Oliver? um i you know first of all it's a small island in and of itself geographically but they have there's england there's scotland there's wales there's northern ireland um southern ireland and then even within a city like london they have multiple distinctions accents cultural identifications um, and I think that's, that's like social stratification, but it's also racial stratification. And so it's, you know, it's just, uh, it's a country that polarizes itself. And I found the communities polarized themselves. And so as a white Barbadian, I felt highly excluded from, uh, some of my social peers culturally in terms of my accent Certainly in terms of well, how does that work? Because I know when I lived in London, like people from one part of London would identify who's from the other part of London and what social class are. I mean, is it that really that profound? Because for me, you know, as American coming in, I was way different, you know, they <laughs> I wasn't even in the same domain as them. And and I'm not saying it in a good way, but how did they like treat you like when you would go through those classes? Did were you treated right, higher or lower or what, what, how did, what class did they put you in? I think it depended on who I was talking to. I mean, when I was at the bouncer to the nightclub in Bristol and he found out I was a Barbadian, he took, it, the, took the whole night off to take me on a tour around the city, took me into every venue and said, you know, I was his brother. Um, I was living with a bunch of good friends of mine who are all investment bankers now and uh, come from Judaic backgrounds, and I felt like there was a there was a divide that existed between us. I had dreadlocks at the time, um, and you know, there, it's just it's interesting on the language front because I've done some reading on it, and essentially, people adopt uh, 
language, accents, colloquialisms on the basis of acceptance. And sometimes that acceptance is necessary for economic reasons to get a job or a position. And other times it's for social reasons or a hybrid. So, um, you know, I, I guess Great Britain has a long history of wars and takeovers and hostilities and invaders and so forth. So, um, you know, that, that's probably, it's certainly going to form part of it. Um, but it's, this is not my subject matter expertise. I, no, it's just I interesting. Know. It's yeah. interesting that you've gone through all these. Now, did you change your accent when you were there so that you would fit in more? Not deliberately. But what I've found is that who I am talking to automatically selects the degree to which my accent is Barbadian or skewed towards some sort of agnostic British American mix. Wow, that's amazing. Now you're in France right now. What happens there? Typically, it becomes more British because my mother's British, uh, as are my, my cousins are South African, but her sister was British. And so I have a childhood of associations with going from England to France and spending summers there with my grandparents who are British as well. So this place just um, surfaces that those memories and that the usage of language. Wow, now do you speak French too? Je parle un peu de français, mais c'est pas bien. Now do you speak with the Barbadian accent? Apparently the French accent is uh, highly French and it's a very good French accent, I've been told, and that's because I've been coming to France, so actually hearing French people. Wow, that's amazing. That is incredible. Now yeah. when you get down here, you're hanging around with some guys with dreadlocks, you get into a real heavy Barbadian accent. Yeah, man, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I love that. Yeah, that's it. Super. So tell me a little bit about it. So you've gone down through, you know, you started Panther Protocol. You know, you've had a wide, wide background from, you know, polymath and beam uh, shift, you know. Um, and when did you decide you wanted to be a founder? Right at the start. And it was. It was less, uh, an, in some sense, it was an explicit decision. My father offered me very little career advice, but the advice he did offer was work for yourself. And so when I got into music and reggae as a full-time artist, I set up my own record label in order to handle the intellectual property and packaging and distribution and live performances and that sort of process end-to-end, -end, which was a great business 101. It wasn't lucrative, but it taught me, uh, it allowed me to apply all of the, the principles I'd learned in, in university around business. And then I uh, had a few unsuccessful efforts at forming data storage companies and energy conservation companies and so forth, um, which really didn't make it past ideation phase. And I came to Barbados to get my O1 visa, which I got and was introduced to Bitcoin uh, by a friend of Wait, mine. Who, now, are you Barbadian then, or what, what's your? So why I would you? Get, why would you get an O one visa? You have to do that in Barbados. Because the Caribbean U S embassy is in Barbados. Ah, I see. So, you got a U.S. embassy. Uh, yeah. Got, yeah, I got it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I got that that visa, and then my friend, who had a background in IT security and cryptography introduced me to Bitcoin and asked me if he should sell it. It was up 800% at 
a grand total of $200 or so. I think, in fact, I think it was $88 at the time. And in my efforts to debunk him with macroeconomic uh, and a, a background in macroeconomics and international finance, I did my research and fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And so within about a week, he and I started the first Caribbean Bitcoin mining company and then the first Caribbean broker dealer and exchange for, um, for digital assets. And that sort of has been snowballing for the last. Uh, and how did you do? How early did you get in crypto? So I bought my first Bitcoin at the top of the March 2013 bubble, which was $205. Uh, and then I sort of DCA'd in after that around $100 and through 2015 and 2016. So 500, 800, uh, $5,000 and so forth. And then I did the Ethereum ICO. Um, so I bought ETH at 25 cents and then that was a game changer, even though it was a very small. Did you buy a lot of it? No, because I mean, I came from a background as a struggling musician. So all of my money, anything I'd had in savings, inheritance, my own earnings, et cetera, that was all spent on producing music, uh, building my own record label. So what, what I can say is that for from 2013 to 2000 and early 2018, I would have been 99% of my asset base would have been in digital assets. And so that type of long exposure had a huge multiplier effect on, on what little wealth I had and turned it into something that allowed me to have, you know, the sort of independence and financial freedom that I have been taken advantage of as an entrepreneur the last. No, that's that's for you. Well, even if you put $10,000 in, you make a lot of money. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. So, so you did that. And how did that change your life when you had that financial independence? Well, you know, crypto has a lot of uh, volatility. So I guess I became a multimillionaire and then I lost it. And then I became a multimillionaire and then I kept it. And how, I does, think, how does it go, Oliver? How does it feel like you go up and all of a sudden, you know, the king of the heat, Bitcoin's at 60,000 or whatever it is. And then it drops down to 17,000. How does it feel going up to the top and write it down? Do you get nervous doing it? I mean, what's the feeling like? Or do you get used um, to it? So, you know, this last cycle, when the last three years, I've been in pretty indifferent emotionally to it. Of course, I'm impacted, but I diversified my portfolio. I set up other businesses. Uh, I have, you know, Panther, I'm CEO. I have a long runway, uh, an incredible team. We raised enough money knowing that there would be a bear market. We forecasted it would be anywhere from two to five years. And we have cut our cloth accordingly in terms of runway and product mapping. And so that was specifically done so that our team didn't have to go through the emotional turmoil. And so in that context, when I'm wearing that hat, it doesn't matter what the price is. In terms of our personal portfolio, I hedged that out this last cycle enough that again, you know, it's not nice to suffer that type of drawdown, but the business strategy for the asset management firm is intact. I think in the last cycle, 2017 to 2018, the way I describe it is, First, I had to learn how to be broke. Then I had to learn how to make money. Then I had to learn how to lose it. 
and then learn how to make it again. Then I learned how to keep it. And once I kept it, I had to learn how to spend it. And all of those were distinct events for me. That how do you learn how to keep it? What do you do? Diversify your portfolio? Yeah, I think diversification is, you know, like, I think diversification is, it's used as a cop-out by too many asset managers. You don't, you, ideally, you don't want to diversify your winners into subpar investments. Uh, you really want to be a value investor and diversify your portfolio across value. That's how I see it. Um, I do, I think, you know, I think even in this time, I, my portfolio does not have enough blue chip equities um, in it. I don't have commodities. I don't have gold in my portfolio. I am a specialist in the digital asset space. And so my diversification has been across that sector. And, you know, it's really looking pretty poor for crypto in the U.S. right now with the SEC actions most recently this past week, Gary Gensler and so forth. Um, but I do hold to the thesis that Web3, as we're now calling it, which is underpinned by blockchain technology, is going to be pervasive. And so if I'm investing into Web3 technologies, which I am, I can diversify across, quote unquote, the Internet, which, uh, which allows me to touch enough different sectors that you know, we can be stable. No, that's fantastic. So you've gone down through this journey, you know, authentic revolution, uh, you know, you uh, bit or, you know, if you're going down through and you had different roles, CFO role, CPO role, um, you've got elemental, you got base two. you skipped around a lot. How did you, why did you go from, I know you were in elemental five years, right? Yep. And then what made you decide to get ele out of elemental? Well, um, you know, I think there's stories behind this in terms of lessons learned. Uh, for one, Elemental, th there was a simple reason. Elemental was never shut down. The company is actually in the process of being activated through our venture studio now. And I'm doing that uh, in tandem with a, a digital bank uh, in Barbados that wants to run a commercial pilot. And... What had happened was as CEO of Elemental, I saw the crypto, COVID came about, first of all. So I was stuck in the house with nothing to do. And I, um, I like to remain productive. So I began incubating this concept of a zero knowledge protocol that could serve DeFi institutionals compliantly. And that became Panther and it began to snowball and investor capital began to flow in. And I could just, I've done, it It was the same thing that had happened when I founded Bit, which was that the idea was bigger than myself. And so as majority holder of Elemental, I put it into a state of dormancy. I was not supposed to be CEO of Panther, but I couldn't be CEO of two companies. So Elemental went on the back burner, Panther's become the full-time project and, uh, and, you know, now I'm looking at Elemental and this partnership and uh, activating it, but not from the perspective of an executive, more so from the perspective of uh, uh, of a strategic venture partner, I suppose. And so tell us a little bit about Panther. And, you know, how'd you come up with this Panther protocol and what does it do? So Panther allows users or enterprises to interact with DeFi confidentially, uh, 
in a nutshell. So if you want to conduct a transaction on a well-known decentralized exchange, Uniswap would be the best known. You can swap your assets on Uniswap privately using Panther and still be compliant with uh, regulations. That's that's an, a use case for Panther. That's what it does. It also enables private shield uh, bridging of transactions across chain. And in a nutshell, our users are power users, hedge funds, broker dealers on chain, users that want to protect their alpha, protect their portfolio, protect their trades, protect their data uh, from on-chain surveillance. Uh, and the idea came about in discussion with my co-founder, who is a technical co-founder, and we were discussing the applications of zero-knowledge technology to prime brokerage in the Web3 space. And we had a choice to either build the zero-knowledge prime brokerage or build the infrastructure that would allow any brokerage to operate with zero knowledge technology. And so we did the latter sort of generalized where we could. And that ended up uh, put me on the side of building protocols versus operating a company. So, you know, as you're going down through this, do you have sales at Panther today? Uh, technically, yes. I mean, we sold our ZKP utility token to private investors, accredited investors, that's a utility token. So, you know, we amortize, uh, sort of accrue those revenues over the years. But Panther today, well, we're two months, three months away from mainnet launch. We've launched two uh, alpha products, basic staking and advanced staking. The second use cryptography to uh, zero knowledge cryptography to uh, enable users to earn rewards without disclosing that information on chain. And so we had about 6,000 uh, testers for that in the public markets. And yeah, with mainnet, we'll see what happens. Yeah, so, you know, you're going down through all these companies. How do you stay positive, Oliver? You're going through these ups and downs and ins and outs with the crypto stuff, with different companies, trying to establish part of market. How do you stay positive? To be honest, Gary, I've never lost at anything that I kept going with, like uh, whether it was my education, sports. Um, I, I believe in myself. Um, I believe, you know, life is not a race. There's no finish line that you have to cross that says you won and you lost. And if you don't give up, uh, you can make it. You can define what your path looks like now in the world of entrepreneurship that can certainly involve a lot of highs and lows. Uh, pivots are common in the startup world in any event. And, um, you know, you just, you have to decide whether or not you want to continue with whatever venture you're working on. And you can make it a success if you persevere with it and pivot accordingly and stay committed to the path, you take information from the market um, as necessary. So I never have a concern about, am I going to be successful? My bigger concern is, am I happy? Am I fulfilled in what I'm doing? Is this leaving me or giving me the right lifestyle to do the things that are important to me? And so those are the, those are the, that's how I lead my decision-making today. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the moment I'm in right now, I mean, 
this market's been tough on everyone. We, I have a stable coin infrastructure protocol we incubated. We had to lay off uh, 60% of our staff, which is, a, you know, we went from 35 to sort of 12 people in the last few months. And the CEO of that company had been running on 30 days of runway for almost eight months. I mean, it's a really heroic effort, really, from the management team there. And, you know, we had multiple conversations where we looked at each other and said, are we bankrupt today? And it was an interesting conversation to be a part of because if we decided that we were, we were. But we decided that, no, we weren't. There's their legs in this still, and we're going to make decisions. And, and we've made those decisions. We've cut the team. We extended the runway. We delivered the product. Ashley, I got a message today. We're revenue positive. We launched the product a few days ago. Uh, we're revenue positive as of, as of today. So that's an example for me of, like, as I mentioned earlier, staying, staying committed and determining your own destiny. That's great. So closing thoughts, we're coming up to the top of the show. Closing thoughts for those entrepreneurs, investors out there. And what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Uh, you can get hold of me at original Ollie, original O L I I that's Instagram, Twitter, Telegram. Um, that's how you can get hold of me. My closing thoughts, I guess it's no different. It's not like entrepreneurship for me is not about setting up a business and having a huge exit and making a grand deal of money. Uh, the question is more, what's your life about? And what do you what's interesting for you what's impactful for you in your life and find that purpose and live it because at the end of the day it's inevitably going to be shorter than you thought it was yeah, going no, to you're, be. you're right about that i've heard that in the last couple of days a lot right time is the most valuable thing and sometimes we forget about to live our life and enjoy ourselves and have fun and um with all the well all the things around us today enjoying your life, having some fun, spending time with your family and friends is really important. So Oliver, I want to thank you very much for joining my show today. It's great to see you. Have fun in Bordeaux. Enjoy your family and uh, hope to see you in person soon. To all my audience out there, thank you so much for joining. One more time, GSD presents Silicon Valley AI and Tech. And my name is Gary Fowler and I'm your host. Stay happy, stay safe and stay healthy. And I'll be back to you again next week with another exciting edition. Take care, Oliver. Take care, everybody, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.